Uh, I will go ahead and pray for us, and then we can get started. Father, thank you um, for this day, Lord, the Lord's Day, to come and to be with your people, um, to learn from your word, um, to be have your spirit work in us, what is good and pleasing in your sight, uh, Lord, that we might worship together and be encouraged and refreshed. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time this morning and pray, Lord, for your spirit to work um, through our discussion time, through what we see in your word, Lord, to transform our minds and our hearts, um, to make us more like Christ. Uh, sanctify us, Lord, and, and use me this morning, a broken vessel, Lord, by your grace to convey your truth. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. So this morning we have, we're at the final list of the fruit of the Spirit, talking about self-control. And the only disappointing thing about moving it from last week to this week was I thought I was going to have a really clever quip about self-control and roasting people about their Thanksgivings and how much pie (laughs) they had. But... uh, doesn't work quite as well, but I still had to get it out there because I thought it was, I thought it was funny. So um, to start, we're gonna, I'm going to do the same thing we have been doing, um, where we're going to start by defining self-control and talking about what that means. We're going to spend a little more time on that this morning because I think it's helpful because um, there's a lot of misconceptions that probably go into self-control. And then we'll talk about self-control in the life of Christ and, and the gospel and then spend some time dialoguing together discussing self-control in the life of the believer. So if you guys want to gather up together for the first five minutes or so, if you guys want to just discuss um, what do you think self-control is, how would you define that to someone, what do you think of when you think of self-control, and then we'll discuss here in a couple minutes. So, um, I was thinking like there's the kind of classic definition of self-control, which is, you know, doing the right thing even when you don't want to do the right thing. Um, but I think there might be something beyond that too, where it's not just been working with me, but angry. But like disciplining your desires to, to like, to like the correct, to love the correct things. That's what that means. Like, I was thinking of a Christian. Yeah, there's definitely an everything in moderation would be part of self-control. I was going to say that self-control is only what to do and what call for right now is not moderation but some sort of extreme reaction mm-hmm. like if someone's attacking your family there may be some moderation involved but in general if someone's attacking your family you might need to take some extreme action at that point Something to this is what I should love. 
I'm gonna, this is my world. And I'm going to love it more than I love anything else. Well, then, that, then, it, nothing in this world can fulfill that purpose. And that becomes some sort of idol. It becomes some sort of tyrant, in a sense, too. Um, we need to moderate our loves to truly love them. Like we're demanding something of it that can't possibly fulfill. So we're really actually not really loving that thing, whether it's a spouse or a dog or whatever it is. Um, and uh, because we're demanding other things that it can't possibly fulfill. So we need, moder- need moderation to a certain extent in that sense. Um, but there's also, yeah, we need self-control to be able to say no to things even when we don't want them. That's, that's definitely part or, of it. Or yes to things when we don't want them. Yeah. Yes. So I'm going to bring us back, um, and I'm just going to consider that our group discussion time because, you know, it's not, I guess, not enough of us to <laughs> switch ideas. But a lot of those things that you guys are hitting on are things that I wanted to hit on. Um, so when we come to defining self-control, one of the things that I wanted to emphasize um, that's distinct to self-control in the Bible is self-control is not just sheer willpower. And I think that's why I'm spending a little time defining it because there's a there's a possibility we might fall in this temptation just by the English translation of the word self-control. What comes to mind is like self. Right, it's my exertion. If I exert enough effort or willpower, then I can stop doing this thing that I should not do. Or um, if I'm, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, I want to uh, eat better, right? But I'm just going to go about it with like sheer determination. I'm going to get up in the morning earlier just by sheer determination. And that's the way the world probably at large, that's the way we think about that, right? Or the world does. And that can be our temptation. and the reason, one of the reasons that that's really not helpful, besides the fact that it's just not biblical, is, as we've talked about before, if we try to do things by our own bootstrapping it, sooner or later that willpower runs out, and most of the time it's sooner rather than later. So when we come to self-control, Jonathan Cruz defines self-control as the power to wait on a perceived good or withhold present desire with the knowledge of a guaranteed better in the future. So self-control has in mind both waiting on something that may be good, and I heard uh, Ben talking about that, that there might be things that are good that we can either make uh, an idol, even though it's a good thing from God because we elevate it to a status that ought not to be, or there's times where we ought to wait on a good just because it's not a time for that. Or sometimes it's, um, like Mark was saying, simple desires, right? The ability to abstain from simple desires because all of this has in view the hope of a better in the future. And so when we come to the Greek, the Greek for self-control comes from two, there's two parts of the word. Um, There's in, which means inner, and then kratos, which means power. And so ekratia is quite literally this inner power. It's this inner power that works within us. Um, It has in view this idea of like self-mastery or power over oneself that comes from within, but not by oneself. Comes from within, but not by oneself. So the distinction between willpower and self-control is self-control is wrought by the Spirit within us, right? It's wrought by Christ within us, not me exerting this power on my own. And I think Gail gets at this really, really well with this quote. He says, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit for the management of self and the strength of Christ." Willpower is seated in the natural man, while self-control is rooted in the vine and is a product of abiding in it. So, 
last week with Josh, or last time we met, I guess, with Josh, we talked about goodness. And we talked about, in the Greek, how goodness is this idea of God working to align our wills with his will, right? And so he, he brings us into alignment with his will so that what we desire to do is what God would have us do. So we could think of self-control then as like the practical outworking of that work in us, right? God brings us in alignment with his will, and then self-control is the power of the Spirit working in us that enables us now to then do God's will, not by our own effort, but by the Spirit. So this is really, really important, and it's a really fitting end, I think, to the fruit of the Spirit, right? We come to the very tail end of this. If the fruit of the Spirit is these fruits that are wrought in the Christian life that are evidences of the spirit within us, and they're set in contrast to the flesh, it's a pretty fitting end that one of those is, in of itself, the spirit working in us, enabling us to live by the spirit and not by the flesh. So it's like this, almost like a capstone on everything that Paul's just said. So I want to turn to the life of Christ and look at self-control. Um, and before we get to Christ's life, I want to back up. Yep, you're good. I want to back up a little bit to the beginning of the Bible, and we're going to look at Adam. And so today, we're going to look at this idea of um, the first Adam and the second Adam. So for the kids, Adam was the first created being, right? Well, in the New Testament, the New Testament authors, they take that idea, and they make a parallel between the first Adam and the Garden of Eden, and Jesus, who is the second Adam. And the reason they do that is Adam was the first made man. He was like the first of all creation, right? Well, with Jesus, we have a new humanity. Like Adam, he's born without a sin nature, and he comes to earth. He's the firstborn of a new new humanity. So I want to start with the first Adam. And so I have a question for the kids, which I believe you guys know. When God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he gives them a command. Do you guys know what that command was? Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Correct. They were not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They were able to eat from anything else in the garden. They were to have dominion over the garden. They lived in communion with God. There was the one thing, right, is don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So as the story progresses, you guys remember what happens next in that story. With Adam and Eve, they've given the commands. Eve is strolling along in the garden. She comes to the tree. And who starts to talk with Eve? You guys remember? Shout it out. <laughs> the serpent. The serpent, correct. Yeah, so Satan, the serpent, starts talking with Eve. And as you guys know, he starts questioning God's goodness, God's commands. And he causes Adam and Eve to start to doubt and to wonder. And Adam and Eve fall into sin. Right? And... Um, we start with this because it's really, really important for us understanding Christ and his work later. And so I want to read from the Westminster Confession to help me get at my point here. So the Westminster Confession, it says that after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, 
which was subject unto change. Besides this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. And so what I wanted to point out is that, is that emphasis I put up there. They had the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it. And yet under possibility of transgressing. What's really, really important to understand there is that Adam, as the first man, did not have a sin nature. So he was born with the very real possibility and power to keep the command of God. Unlike all of humanity to follow. Because when Adam sins, what happens is that all of humanity, because of Adam, is born with a sin nature. We all inherit a sin nature from Adam as our federal head. And so now all of humans, all of us in this room, were born with a sin nature. And so we're enslaved to sin, no longer righteousness. And so we do not have that power to keep the covenant of works, is what we call it, or to keep that command. We can't please God by our own works because we are enslaved to sin. And so Adam was the first man, and he was born with this power. But because of his sin, not only did he lose this power to keep the covenant of works, but so did all of humanity to follow. And it's really important because then we're going to come to the life of Christ. And as I explained earlier, Christ is the second Adam, right? And so Christ comes, and he's born of a virgin. And for the kids, the reason that's really, really important, right? The virgin birth is a really, really important Christian belief. Because it's because he's born of a virgin that Jesus is not born with a sin nature. Um, he's not born of ordinary generation is a term that we would use, right? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the normal way that a child is conceived by a mother and a father. And so because of that, Jesus is born without a sin nature, which means that Jesus, just like Adam, has the power to keep God's commands, unlike all of the rest of humanity. And so I want to look at two examples, then, of Christ exercising this power and the work of the Spirit in him, the Holy Spirit working in him, where he keeps God's commands and exercises that power to do what is right and to keep God's commands to do his will. So first, if we want to look at Luke chapter 4, if you want to turn there. Luke chapter 4. If you look right before Luke chapter 4, at the very end of Luke chapter 3, what do you see? That's not a rhetorical question. Actually, throw that out. What comes right before Luke chapter 4 begins? A genealogy. A genealogy. It's a genealogy of Jesus. In Luke, in Luke's genealogy, he traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Okay, the first, the first human made by God. Whereas the other genealogy we have, like in Matthew, Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. And so it reveals a different focus of the authors, and they're trying to emphasize different things. But I want you to notice is that Luke, he takes us through this whole genealogy, showing how Jesus is a descendant from Adam. And then, if you look in verse or yeah, verse 1, I'm going to read, or can somebody read for us 1 through verse 12? And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
command this stone become, to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall live, or shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here, notice what Luke does. He takes us through the genealogy of Jesus, back to Adam. And with that fresh in our minds, this idea of Adam, that should bring us all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the first temptation, what's the very next thing that Luke records in his narrative? Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he is tempted. Right? So we have these parallel accounts. Adam, and I put up the comparisons here, you can see all these different parallels. Adam is tempted in the garden. Right? He's tempted in an environment without sin, in a perfect world, a perfect creation. He enjoyed perfect communion with God. There was not sin in the world. He had every opportunity to keep God's covenant. Um, he had all the advantages, so to speak, to keep that covenant. But Adam does not keep the covenant. He disobeys the command, and Paul tells us in Romans 5 that because of Adam's sin, or, yeah, Adam's sin, all sin and death entered the world because of Adam. Well, if you look at Jesus, then, Jesus is not tempted in a garden. He's tempted in the wilderness. He's not tempted in a world that's perfect, where he has every advantage, but he's tempted in a world that is corrupted by sin, where sin is all around him. He sees the effects of sin on the world. Adam is, is tempted while he enjoys all the blessings of creation given for him to enjoy. Jesus is tempted after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens? Unlike Adam, Jesus keeps the command. He is tempted, Luke tells us in verse 13, that when the devil had ended, had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So Jesus undergoes every temptation, every kind of temptation. The devil keeps up this onslaught. And where the first Adam failed, Jesus does not fail. And he exercises that power he has to keep God's will, and he does keep God's will. And so Luke wants us to see this is a monumentous moment. This is a huge deal that Jesus came because we all were born with the sin nature, so we cannot keep God's commands. But what we're seeing with Jesus is that Jesus is the firstborn of a new humanity, and Jesus does keep the command. And we're going to get to how that affects us a little later. But it's really important to keep in mind. And so I want to look at one more, one more narrative in Matthew 26. So if you want to turn to Matthew 26, Jesus undergoes a different type of trial. And in Luke, we could say Jesus keeps the covenant, the commands of God, so that he could procure a righteousness for his people, right? Jesus is living a perfect life of obedience to God's commands on behalf of a simple people. Here, I want to look at how Jesus endures and keeps God's commands to, 
take the penalty for our sin. So in Matthew 26, if you look at verse 36 through 46, we read of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus went to them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So in this narrative, Jesus is faced with the prospect of drinking down this cup. And this cup is this image used throughout all the Old Testament and the prophets. And this cup is the cup of God's wrath. And it's referenced in Jeremiah and Isaiah. He talks about this cup of wrath that he will make the nations drink, will make the Israelites drink. And Jesus, that's the cup that he's asking the Father to pass from him. He's facing the prospect of taking God's wrath on him for the sins of his people. And so the real, the real challenge for Jesus here is not just the physical torment that he would undergo in crucifixion, though that was horrific and that was a necessary thing. What's so crucial to understand about the cross is that Jesus' suffering is a suffering under the righteous justice of God for the sins of his people. So because of Adam's sin, we have all sinned. And Jesus here is taking the wrath of God for that sin. And so we see in these two accounts, Jesus attains a righteousness for his people that they could not attain. And he also takes the wrath of God for their sin. And this is what we talk about in justification, right? Where Jesus, we have this double imputation. Jesus gives to his people his perfect righteousness, the righteousness that he attained by not falling into sin in the wilderness, by not disobeying any of God's commands, he gives that righteousness to all of us as if we had truly done those things. But moreover, he also takes the wrath of God against our sin. And so all of our disobedience, all the ways that we have not kept the covenant of works, Jesus takes that wrath so that we don't have to pay for it. And so we are forgiven our sins and justified. Now the last thing I want to talk about, and I don't think I have a slide for this, because think about this point, I just want to quickly talk about the resurrection too. Because we do emphasize the cross a lot, and that is a good thing. But sometimes we can forget about the necessity of the resurrection. And I think with this subject, it is so particularly important. Because the resurrection of Jesus is what gives us the power over sin and death. It is the hope of the Christian life. That Jesus not only died for our sins, that he gives us his righteousness, but the resurrection is God saying that Jesus' atonement is accepted, that it's satisfactory, that Jesus himself was truly righteousness, and so death has no claim on him, death has no hold on him, 
And for all the people who are in Christ, right, in union with Christ, all those who abide in him will also experience resurrection life. We also have that hope. And one of the great benefits I want to talk about real quick is because Jesus resurrected from the dead, he rises victorious over sin and death. And for all of us who are in him, right, we talked about the very beginning of this, about that idea of the vine and the branches. For all those who are in the vine, that power over sin has been given to us because of our union with Christ. And we still struggle with sin, and we'll have some time dialoguing and discussing together. But the good news of the gospel here is that Jesus, he achieves this power over sin for his people. And he gives us his spirit so that now we have that inner power, where we once did not have that inner power. And we can get to a time of true discussion, but I just want to say, like, for me, that was a very, it's a very comforting, encouraging thing. Because if you're anything like me, you've sinned in your life. And if you're anything like me, you've sinned after you become a Christian. And you know the discouragement and the frustration. And sometimes it feels like an onslaught. You know, there's times where the walk with the Lord is easier. And there's times where it feels like you are just crawling, trying to move along. And you feel those, those old patterns of behavior clinging at you, the flesh clinging at you. But it is such good news for us. And we should never lose sight of that, that Jesus came and did it for us first. He was righteous where we were not. He took the wrath of God. And then he rose victorious over sin and death so that we also could have victory over sin and death. And so when we get in these struggles and these trials we fight against sin and these issues in our lives, it's good news to remember that we do actually have that power at work within us. That the Spirit is in working within you. And that your fight against sin is not in vain. And I think there's times where I've felt that in my own life, where it feels like I'm striving for this thing that I will never, ever actually see, right? I'm like trying to beat the wind. It's like I fight sin because that's what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know that there's actually a time where I get over the hill. I don't actually ever get to the mountaintop. And the good news of the gospel is that you do, that all this life we are progressing, and we're being progressively sanctified more and more and more, and that will culminate in the return of Christ where he will give us resurrected bodies, and there will be no more sin. There will be no more death and decay. All those things will be finally put right. And so what we're doing is we're striving to that end, but we're not doing it by sheer willpower. We're not fighting sin by sheer willpower and bootstrapping it. We're fighting by the power of the Spirit. Just like Jesus went up into the wilderness full of the Spirit, we have that same Spirit within us. And so that's good news, and we can take great encouragement and rest in that. And so I'll talk. stop, because I could preach on and on about that. That's just such good news. But we're going to turn to a time of group discussion together. So if we want to get in groups of three to five, we'll probably spend the rest of our time discussing and then coming back together. And so we're just going to discuss and reflect on self-control in the life of the believer. With everything we just saw in the gospel and the work of God to give us this power of sin, let's get together. And first question, we'll spend a few minutes on this, is how does Jesus' examples of self-control change the way you think about self-control? How does it encourage or convict you? And what effect does it have on your heart?
just the convicting and challenging us aspect. Uh, I was listening to a sermon by Ben Franks last week or two weeks ago on that passage of the temptation of Jesus and just the point drawn out of so when I haven't eaten all day, how much easier is it for me to sin? How much easier is it for me to snap at someone or to react? Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's hungry. Um, so from a human perspective, he's very, very weak, and yet he has the strength with, uh, to resist the temptation. And then going back to what you were saying earlier, of it's not a control from itself, but it's a control from within of the Holy Spirit within us. So having the Holy Spirit within us, we can resist that temptation even when we are physically weak. I think this is always really encouraging. Like I, I, I think on this a lot whenever we come to the time of Lord's Supper because this is literally the, the physical thought and translation of this whole thought is we are feasting on Christ and, and we we have been rooted in the vine and we have the power of the Holy Spirit and that, that's really what this whole thing is about is um, that, that should be encouraging us if, if we're convicted prior to and then encouraged because we have that power and, and that's what the, the Lord Supper tells us and communicates to us is you live in Christ and you feast on him and go and do good works versus Satan and, and do my will in the world. And this wasn't really brought up by what you said, but I think it's encouraging to me that Christ has the Holy Spirit. In some of the passages, I think it talks about how the Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Uh, and it's partially because of the Holy Spirit that he's able to resist him. In, in a sense, um, it's Him working, the Holy Spirit working in Him, and we have that same Holy Spirit um, working in us. As we were saying before, like it's this is the fruit of the Spirit, and it's that inner power that doesn't come from us. It comes from Him, and so much of the time with this we put it on ourselves, but we need to rely on God. We need to rely on the Spirit. Yes, there's discipline. Yes, there's things we do but it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, those are all good thoughts. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it is encouraging. And, and I agree that like, it's God is so good to give so many different examples and reminders of this in our own lives, right? He gives us the word that we can meditate on. And, and it's the word that Jesus employs to fight the temptation in the wilderness. Um, he's given us the Lord's Supper so that we can feast and commune with him and be encouraged or refreshed so that we might go out and do those good works. And even today, you know, we have baptism, right? That sign of the work of God in his people to regenerate, um, to redeem. And so there's just so many good ways that God reminds us and encourages us. Um, so let's move on to the next couple questions. So first is, why would we need self-control? Um, it's kind of a basic question, but why, why might we need to control our impulses? And then the second question is, how does a biblical understanding of self-control and the gospel enable us to avoid vain efforts of mere willpower and to exercise true spirit-wrought self-control? What is the difference between self-control and willpower? We talked about it a little bit, but discuss in greater detail. So we'll take a few minutes and we'll come back together again.
So, in your in your group discussion, what are some of our thoughts? What are some of the answers we came up with? Those questions. We're good. We don't need self control. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was hoping you're getting out of this. So, yeah. Yeah, they're great. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I need to start over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we, I mean, I'll joke inside. We are selfish. You know, we yeah. want everything to revolve around us. You know? <laughs> so our self is a little out of control, to say the least, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So we definitely need that control. Uh, our nature is what we know. It's not good. So we need to be restrained. Yeah. And even with the new nature we have, where God gives us good impulses, Romans 7 still in effect. We still have those impulses that break in and wreck our lives if we aren't able to. Our, our, to our sinful nature and then the nature of Christ and the Holy Spirit within us are at work within us. If you look at the context in Galatians, right, that's what we're talking about, there's this, there's this war between the flesh and between the spirit, and that war, and that's why he exhorts us, walk by the spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? We still, even though we have a new nature in Christ, God has made us new, we still have those those old impulses, those, uh, I think Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, as a doctor, um, an actual medical doctor, you know, he compared it to like muscle memory, right? Like there's these old habits that cling to us in our sin um, before we came to know Christ. And we still have to fight those things. And we have to control, use self-control to fight against those sins. Um, and even at times, you know, there's, we talked about this earlier, there's things that are good in our lives that we can easily make an idol, and we can elevate to a place it shouldn't be, right? And that's there's a lot of good gifts that God gives that we can do that. And self-control helps us keep from turning those things into idolatries, into sins, and enjoy them in the good and proper way that God intended them to be enjoyed. So what about that second second question for some thoughts? Well, willpower comes from inside ourselves. That's whatever we can muster up in our own strength. Whereas, you know, uh, self-control comes from the Spirit of God. So, you know, somebody made the comment in our group about if you want to know what willpower looks like, then just look at the world. 
mm-hmm. you know, because they don't have the spirit, you know, and so they might be self-disciplined yeah. in some ways, but not, you know, that self is still not controlled yeah. and stuff. And usually the self-discipline comes in external things, not in internal things mm-hmm. of the heart. Okay. Okay. I think Luther, you know, Luther talked about how one of the mistakes of the Roman Catholic Church at the time was this, I, I, this way they flipped the working of the gospel, and that it starts external and makes its way internal into us. And Luther argued that we have to be transformed internally so that that comes out externally, right? And to that point, like the world, if you look at the world, that's what we're trying to do, right? To be a better person means I start outside doing external things, and that works in and makes me a better person. Um, but like Mark pointed out earlier, the problem with that is that we are human, we get tired, we get weak. It's really easy to be disciplined when you're full of vigor and strength and energy, right? But what happens when things start not going your way and the obstacles pile up? If you're leaning on your own power, you just you fall short, you fail. That discipline eventually it peters out, right? It runs out. But the power of the Spirit does not run out. It does not end. Um, he's sufficient where we are in, insufficient. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and jump us to our next question because we're running low on time. And I'm actually going to skip a question for the sake of time. Which I didn't want to do, but I'm going to. So this next one's less of a question, um, and it's going to be an evaluation. So take this statement and just discuss it for a couple minutes. Self-control is not a slave driver. It is a freedom fighter. So evaluate that statement. Agree, disagree, what are some insights that is? Yeah. 
tempted to make this like a personal, just individual type of struggle and thinking. So the last questions I want you guys to discuss real quick are, if we are struggling with self-control in a certain area, how might we be tempted to isolate ourselves from others rather than seek their aid? And then two, how can the church help one another as we all seek to exercise self-control in our lives? Jump in and discuss for just a couple minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm
you know, be encouraged by that reality. Be encouraged this morning, um, as Paul tells the Philippians, uh, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you, um, both to will to work for his good pleasure. So let me pray, and then we can get started on getting ready for service. So dear Lord, thank you for this time of discussion, Lord. Thank you for the good news that you have attained us a righteousness um, that we could not attain, that you have taken um, the just penalty for our sin. Um, Lord, thank you for the spirit indwells us so we can be encouraged um, and hope and that we have the power to fight sin and to live for righteousness. Um, Lord, this week, I pray that that would um, transform our minds and our hearts, Lord, and that we would fight sin with vigor and that we would seek you with all our heart. Um, Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.